back for another Real Talk with Chuck and Pam. Thanks so much for joining us again. We've got an interesting discussion today. We've got two films that are released in theaters today, as well as a discussion of those that are released in theaters, but they're not released in wide release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is that uh, time of year in which they have uh, you know, certain movies for award season. They, I guess they call it a platform release, oh. in which they you know, start in the bigger cities, they gain momentum as far as critical acclaim is concerned, and then they spread out okay. to... You know, this used to be the way that all films were released. Uh, my son has me involved in a Star Wars marathon oh, at God. home, <laughs> uh, so that he can be ready to see the new one in theaters. And I was, as I was sitting through all these again, I was reading, do you realize Star Wars, the first film, mm -hmm. opened on 40 screens? No. 40 screens. That's how much confidence uh, theater owners had in this, as far as the publicity material that Fox had. It opened on 40 screens. Wow. And simply from the response of those 40 screens, as far as uh, the tickets they were selling, that opened the floodgates as far as Fox deciding to expand it the way they did. Interesting. So, completely different way of distributing films than what we're used to today. So do you know those 40 screens, were they predominantly like New York and LA or to hit big cities all over? Do you know anything about that? I don't. I'm going to have to dig a little bit deeper on that, but I'm going to assume just because of the sheer number of screens in New York and LA and Chicago that those 40 screens, I would bet a good number of them were. Unlike, and here is a bit of trivia for you, wow. Bonnie and Clyde, uh -huh. the Beatty film, yeah. Warner Brothers hated that film. It actually had its premiere at a Texas drive-in. Really? Yes, yes. They hated it that much that they just dumped it. But Warren <laughs> Beatty believed in the film so much, he went to that when it opened. And he made sure that word of mouth just kept going on that, and he got it in other theaters. And once it got to New York, and Pauline Kael wrote her glowing review of it, well, the rest is history. Wow, interesting. So, yeah, so unlike the whole streaming thing that we have now, or unlike the whole thing where Star Wars, I know it opened on, the latest one opened on over 4,000 screens. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a completely different animal back then. It is. Everything has changed in the film industry, film world, and film criticism even. Yep. Which is why we are doing our podcast, so that we can help you find the right films for you to see in the theaters as well as streaming. And we've got a lot of great information for you today. Yep. Let's start it off. Let's start with Uncut Gems, one of my favorite ones to start with you, Chuck. <laughs> you know, this... Is it a diamond in a rough? I would just say, a rough diamond. I wouldn't say it's in the rough. <laughs> I, think, I think it's fully formed. I think it's nice and it, it's been refined and shined up. Yeah, no, I think it's it's ready to go. And it's uh, next week, I think our podcast is devoted to our best films of the year. And you're going to find that one near the top of my list. Uh, the Softy Brothers, two filmmakers out of New York. I didn't like their previous films uh, because of the manic camera movement, the oppressive sound, the in-your-face style. But here for Uncut Gems, I think it's a great fit for the story they're telling about this jeweler named Howard Ratner, played by Adam Sandler, and his very life is manic 
and in your face. This is a guy who makes one bad decision after another, and it's all, all of his schemes, all of his cons are kind of falling apart at the same time as we pick up in this movie. <laughs> kind of like life has caught up with him. <laughs> Very much so. I mean, not just in his business, but his wife wants a divorce. Oh, but why? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, his daughter's not happy with him. He has a mistress who he's unsure of. He's got financial commitments. He's got mobsters after him for welching on a bet. But all this is going to be solved because he has got this hunk of rock from Ethiopia. And within that hunk of rock, he sees certain gems that he's convinced once he extracts those, everything's going to be fine. His financial problems will be okay, and everything's great. And that's the black opal, right? The, the black and, opal. And is there such a thing as a black opal? I have no idea. I'll have to look into it. But for the purposes of this film, it is very much <laughs> at the center. Uh, Kevin Garnett, the basketball player, plays himself in the film and does a great job. He does. He, he does, does a really great job. I had to look him up because obviously I don't follow basketball, and I had to find out who is this Kevin Garnett, and he was an actual person, a real basketball great. player. Player, great yeah. player. And uh, he stops by Ratner's store one day, and Ratner, starstruck as he is, shows Mr. Garnett this uncut gem, this opal, and he has a connection with it right away, so much so he thinks it's going to be a good luck charm and asks Ratner to borrow it. And then that night he has a career, a career game and is convinced that this opal had something to do with it, and Mr. Ratner has a hard time getting it back. And as I said, that's just one of many problems he has. You know, this thing, it is an assault. It's not a movie. It is an assault. It's a sensory assault. Yeah, and that's the way it should be because he, they do our, their best, the Softy Brothers do their best to put us in the shoes, but also in the head of the Sandler character as far as everything just falling apart around him. Uh, and we do get that sense through their editing, through their their over... You know, there's a very loud <laughs> soundtrack. But it's matched perfectly by Sandler, who is as manic as the camera movements, is as intense as the music, and it's just a perfect combination of performance and the film's aesthetic to put you really in that pressure cooker that he's in. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it is a pressure cooker. You're just ready to explode yeah. midway through the movie, and you still have another hour to go. Exactly, and that's about as far as uh, my wife made it. She made it through an hour. And <laughs> Did said, she? I'm, I'm Impressive. Done. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Because I, sh I would have, had I not have had to see this, I would have lasted 20 minutes at most. My daughter, I think, lasted 10 or 15 and she was And out. I understand that completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if someone, you know, and you've said this, you know, it's too much, and I understand that. Yeah. I, I have no objection with that at all. But it's, as intense as it is, Sandler is so good that I'm going to be sitting through this again probably three times because wow. it's just such a revelation to see him like this. I, I would need blood pressure medication if I were to sit through it another time, let alone another three or four times. And, and I do appreciate it from the filmmaking standpoint. It is bold, to say the least. Um, they word. take a lot of chances, and it is intense, and they definitely draw you into this despicable character. I mean, he is deplorable. He yes. is somebody who I did not root for. I just thought he was disgusting, and I didn't like him in the least, as you can tell. Yeah. Um, however, you know, everything is so manic. Everything is so just stressful that you have to find out what happens to him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, endings make or break a film. This made the film for me. Sandler is still that man-child. He's... he's 
unfortunately not funny at all. There's no humor. I found no humor in this. I think I found no humor in this. I laughed a couple of times. Did you? Okay. But only because things were going so badly for him. Okay, that's like, like an uncomfortable laugh. Yeah, it was like, could, could anything worse happen? And then yes. Something else would happen, answer, and I answer, couldn't help yes. but chuckle at like, oh, God, what now? Yeah. From a filmmaking standpoint, that, that boldness is really going to put them into the spotlight, as it will Adam Sandler as well. And you also liked the young woman who played her, the mistress in this. Julia Fox is her name, and this is her first film. I thought she was just toe-to-toe with him at, at, at every point. There are some pretty intense scenes with yeah. her as well, and she didn't shrink from that. Uh, yeah, Julia Fox, remember that name. I have a feeling we're going to be uh, hearing from her again. You know, the, in the opening scene, the camera takes us into the mines of Ethiopia. Yeah, the and going into the rock that was being chiseled away from the mine beneath the earth, and then we went into the rock and we were transported into what felt like the universe. And then we came out on a whole different end of it. And, and, and Adam Sandler's having a colonoscopy. Whenever, you know, five <laughs> minutes in, you're going to know whether this is a movie for you or not. You know what, you're right. Probably right after that point is when, you know, I thought just like the camera work, this is so incredible. I really feel like I was being transported into this stone and the magic that the stone held. And then, then it was, it was that bombardment. I was, I was just sucker punched with mm-hmm. the music and the language and... I know I drop F-bombs pretty darn frequently, but even this was like overload for me. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't like that kind of stuff, you're going to find it a totally offensive film. If you can hang in there, yep. you're going to be, it'll be worth your, your ride. I think so. Now, hmm. something on the other end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. the other end of the spectrum, right. Greta Gerwig adapted Little Women, again. one of the big, again, one of the big films for this Christmas. Uh, before we get into let's listen to a clip from uh, Little Women. Frankly, I don't see why she didn't marry the neighbor. Well, because the neighbor marries her sister. Right, right, of course. So, who does she marry? No one. She doesn't marry either of them. No. No, 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 that won't work at all. Well, she says the whole book that she doesn't want to marry. Who cares? Girls want to see women married, not consistent. No, it isn't the right ending. The right ending is the one that sells. Trust me, if you decide to end your delightful book with your heroine a spinster, no one will buy it. It won't be worth printing. I suppose marriage has always been an economic proposition, even in fiction. It's romance. (laughs) It's mercenary. Just end it that way, will you? You know, I, I did Uncut Gems. Why don't you start with Little Women? Why don't I? You're Why a woman. You're a woman. I'm women. So you, this should <laughs> hear me roar. Should Are you ready right, to hear me roar? Right, right in your wheelhouse here, right? <laughs> it should be. You really think it would be. Um, okay, I'm going to like set a couple things on the table right now. I didn't read the book as a kid. I, I was reading Nancy Drew and, I don't know, catching tadpoles and making mud pies and riding my horse and... Doing those kinds of things. So I don't think that this story appealed to me even when I was a youngster. So I think if if everyone that I'm talking to who has read the book, who has this as a childhood cherished memory, you're probably going to love it. It sounds like it duplicates, replicates everything that happens in the book and maybe even a little bit more and maybe even better is a few things that Louisa May Alcott did in 1868. And I'm emphasizing that because... It's a timeless novel? Oh, it is just 
set back in that time and antiquated. We've got the March sisters who are coming of age and it's a retrospective look from Joe's point of view looking back in time but I didn't know she was looking back in time because the time there's a time it's non-linear it's a non-linear story <laughs> and Joe is having some issues with being a female writer and she really wants to be a writer and she's having these interactions with the her publisher publisher is played by Tracy Letts this is just, it was just a, a frustrating film to me because I didn't know when I was in the movie. Tracy Letts plays the publisher, as I said, and their interactions are charming and priceless. Everything else to me just seemed to be so, such a patriarchal society and emphasizing those values, even though they were fighting against that type of a system. I think in the end, the message was find a man, get married, and be happy. That's not true. Okay, so tell me what you think that is. I think the message is is that despite their longing to be independent, despite their strength, they are still hemmed in by this. But Joe doesn't go in for that. She doesn't get married. Not in real life. Not in real life. And and and, and, and you know that I think is one of the great points that is made by that is that Alcott didn't want that to happen. And she does say at the end, you know, well, if my Marin character is going to be married, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get paid for that. So I think that that was, in some ways, the genius of Gerwig's framing device, having basically the Louisa May Alcott character, Joe, Joe, recognize that she has to compromise. But her inner spirit is never compromised. She's still the same person. She's still the same person who sets up this school to, uh, to help other, other uh, students who aren't going to have a chance at an education. They still maintain, I believe, that independence within themselves. I mean, they're the ones who are wearing the pants in each one of those relationships. And obviously, that's not what we're looking for today. But within the society of the 1870s, within the limits of that society, I think that they do become independent, strong women. Okay. I took away something totally different. And so <clears throat> I did. could be wrong. Yeah. You, know, I'm, you I'm, could be. You know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the middle-aged, fat, white guy. You know, I'm not the audience for this. So maybe I'm seeing it completely differently and completely wrong. And, and maybe I'm remembering the ending a little differently, too. And we won't give that away. If you haven't read the book and you haven't seen the movie, I don't want to give a big spoiler here. So we'll chat about that off the air. No, we can chat about it. I think it's well known. I mean, yeah, Joe ends up with someone. Yeah, and and that's what makes her happy. She's happy now. All of a sudden, she's happy, happy, happy. Is that the reason she's happy? It seems to be. She was lonely. She couldn't. She she was doing everything that she wanted to, but she's lonely. Let's listen to a clip, and then I'll I'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay. I just I just feel I just feel like. Women, they, they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts and they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty and I'm so sick of people saying that, that love is just all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. But I'm, I'm so lonely. So, yes, to me, that was the message of the movie. Okay. I took something different away from it than you did, and, and I think the whole overacting aspect of it was irritating to me. And I, I probably had my guard up after the first, again, five or ten minutes in the movie because I felt like it was like everyone graduated from the top of their class in a school of overacting. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> if you say so. So, what do you think about the character of uh, Lawrence from uh, a performance from Timothy Chalamet? I had no problem with it. I think it was a different take on the character than other versions that I've seen. If I remember correctly, the Christian Bale take on this character, it was very confident, very cocky. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of like the fact that this Lawrence was, or Laurie was, he wasn't as mature. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a bit more desperate. He goes out of his way to call attention to himself. And I think that speaks to his insecurity. So I kind of like that because it was different. And also, Joe is obviously the dominant one within that relationship. And I think that that helped that as well. Okay. I didn't buy him in that character because I think he was trying to come off as being that cocky guy who could have any girl he wanted. And I just didn't buy him in that role. Okay. Okay. All right. So we agree to disagree on this one, don't we? There's nothing else we can do, right? (laughs) No, there isn't. (laughs) (laughs) We'll arm wrestle. Ready? Okay, ready. So that brings us to one of those films that I think is hoping for some Oscar attention. And um, we'll get it. And I'm, sh- I'm sure we'll get it. It yeah. is not in wide release yet, though. In fact, I don't think it's going to be in wide release until after the first of the year. January 10th. January 10th. 1917 is what we're talking about. Um, and this is a movie about World War One. Chuck, take it away. I think you do a better job with this one. It's a simple movie. Story-wise, I mean, the, the premise of this couldn't be much more simple. Uh, Sam Mendes, the guy who directed American Beauty and Road to Perdition, he said that he made this film based on stories that his grandfather would tell him, a World War One vet. And I read an article yesterday in which he said the thing that struck him about the stories was that it wasn't stories of heroism, he said. They were just random kind times of bits of time that his grandfather would tell him and that he would strung together to make this story about two young soldiers who are given a very arduous task. They are in the trenches in, uh, in Europe and they are told by their commanding officer that they need to deliver a message many miles away across enemy lines to another division of soldiers that are about to stumble into a trap. And one of the young men who is given this assignment, his brother, is with that group. So it is a uh, ticking clock film, I like to call. These two have got to go through many different trials in order to deliver this message to save these guys. They go through trenches, they go through uh, no man's land, they go into an underground bunker. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Gives me the shivers thinking about that. Yeah, if you don't like rats, that would be, once they go underground, go get some popcorn or something like that. Uh, And quite a few other trials. And the trick of the film is that Mendes wanted to make it seem as though it was an one unbroken take. And he does that for about the first hour. And then there's an obvious break, and that is thrown out the window for a little while. It's an interesting approach to this movie, I think, because it ends up being an intimate story amidst all of this chaos. And that's, I think, where that single take thing comes in. We're with these guys every step of the way. The performances from the two leads are just incredible because you see them processing this uh, and going through all of these things and you see how they change as this whole thing goes on. It's an interesting experiment. I was mostly engaged in it. I think you and I have both talked about a moment where the thing seems to jump the tracks, right? Uh, which is regrettable. But it is a movie that definitely you have to see on a big screen, I think, mm-hmm. to appreciate the scope of this thing. Yes, it is intimate as far as these two guys, but Mendes doesn't let us forget the wide-scale destruction 
of this whole enterprise. I have not seen a World War film, World War One film this horrific. Right. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. It's like a horror film at it times. Is. And I'm remembering, and I'm not going to be able to shake, I think you and I both kind of gasped. Yeah. There's a sequence in which they walk through this valley that has been completely obliterated, and the things they find are. Oh, just walking or wading through, swimming through that water. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just the worst. Yeah. Just the absolute worst. It, it felt so real. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head with this one. Um, even though, you know, we have discussed a couple of the flaws, and I don't want to give those away because I think that'll ruin it for right, people. Right. Yeah. But, you know, having this grand scale of a film and making it so intimate, he makes it intimate by bringing you into the film. Yeah. You are a part of this film. You are a part of World War One, and your heart is racing with these young boys. And they are boys. Yeah. They are yeah. boys trying to save people's lives. It's incredible. And George McKay is one of the young heroes in this film. Um, incredible young actor. He was in Captain Fantastic right. as well as Ophelia. Standout actor. I'm glad to see him in a lead role. I don't think people know his name or his face yet but they will after this movie yeah but the cinematography definitely is what brings me into the film and brings me into seeing what is happening and being a part of it and we talked a lot after the movie and then started doing research in world war one because neither one of us i'm going to put three under the bus here with me didn't know that much about World War One, and we know more about trench warfare and what the whole beginnings of World right. War One were about, and how they they built the trenches. I mean, it's an yeah, incredible it's feat, and, and, and production-wise in this movie, how they built those trenches too. I, and I love fact-based movies that prompt you to do that. You want to know more mm-hmm. walking out of the theater, and that was certainly the case. The case with this one. And you know what? The whole single take thing, I don't know about you, but about 10 minutes in, I almost forgot about it. The story sucks you into the, so much that I almost forgot that this was the trick. Mm-hmm. But then there were certain camera movements, though, right. where I was like, my God, how did they do that? So It's, it's, <laughs> it's like somebody of, was walking on the ceiling <clears throat> with a camera to be able to get these yeah. shots. You and, know? and so I, I, then it snaps me into, well, how did they choreograph this? What's right. the cameraman doing as you know, the actors are doing this thing? And I'm longing for, and I hope that with the DVD release, that they have a making up featurette mm-hmm. for this because it is a technologically, it's an astounding, astounding achievement. Right. Yeah. And I think one thing we should point out you would think that a movie like this would not need an editor, but I think the editor will be nominated, and the editor's role is much more significant than you realize. Right. Because these takes, I think, were only about eight to 10 minutes long. Oh, really? Yeah. And, okay. and so then they sewed them together with these match cuts that you don't even realize no. there. No. There's an interesting article in this week's Hollywood Reporter. I think you got it at home. Mm-hmm. Read it. And okay. they talk, the editor talks about making those choices of which scenes to meld with the previous scenes and said it was like just a make or break thing wow. as far as the movie is concerned. But yeah, each takes only about eight to ten minutes. And see, I didn't realize that because when I was I. watching it, I felt like I looked at my watch after ten minutes because I thought, oh my gosh, this is one take. And mm-hmm. then it was 45 minutes before that break that you're talking about. Yeah, that one obvious yeah. break. Um, so. In my mind, it was one take. So to be able to fool me like that is pretty darn good. Yeah, because I think we're, you know, film goers today are much more sophisticated. Yeah. We know things. Even yeah. the common film knows how oh, things yeah. are done. But this one, 
I couldn't tell you how they did it. Nope. And I'm very curious. Yeah. It would be a lot of fun to see the director's cut. We'll have to watch for that. Yeah. And if that comes out, we will share what we know. Right. And as you say, it'll go into wide release on January 10th. So plenty of time to get all those other Christmas movies seen. And then clear the decks on January 10th. This will be the one to see. Very good. Actually, there's another one to see on January 10th. Yes. It's opening in L.A. and New York is Just Mercy. We'll talk about that during its release. But that's Michael B. Jordan is in that film along with Brie Larson. Um, and Jamie Foxx. And Jamie Foxx. And then we also have Clemency. And I'm not quite sure what the release date is on that, but I know it is being released in New York and L.A. in order to be considered for Oscar. And that's with Alfred Woodard. And... Aldous Hodge. Yeah. Incredible Two incredible performance. performances. Death Row, uh, very much like Just Mercy. Right. And uh, a bit like Mustang, too. It takes into some account of, of the personal aspects of incarceration. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. But we'll talk more about that when that is, has more of a wide release. Um, let's take a look at what you can rent on DVD right now. We've got Judy. Renee Zellweger is uh, being nominated for Best Actress category for a few different organizations, and I'm guessing she may also be up for Best uh, Leading Lady in Oscar. You know, we're, I'm starting to read these articles in which forecasters are starting to sort all the whole Oscar thing okay. out, and the one thing that is consistent to everyone is that she is the frontrunner. Really? And she is the person to beat. Uh, and really, I think there's only one person who has a shot at beating her. Who? Uh, Scarlett Johansson from okay, Marriage, from Marriage Story. Story. Uh, but really, when you look at that lead actress, once we get those five nominees, I think they're gonna. It's pro probably gonna be the weakest field in all the acting categories. There aren't a lot of movies this year that have a strong female lead. Yeah, there's more. Which is sad. There's gonna be more supporting oh, yeah. actress things that are, are significant than that. And and that's and that's an interesting turn because I think that that lead actress category has been very strong the past four or five years. And this is definitely going to be a downturn. I agree. I totally agree with that. Um, so Judy is about Judy Garland's last um, six weeks um, as a performer in London. She gets a second chance at kind of reinvigorating herself um, just before her demise. Um, interesting story, and uh, I wasn't thrilled with the story itself. I think that uh, Renee Zellberger's performance was incredible. She's the whole show. Yeah. yeah. And then one of my favorites of the year, The Lighthouse, uh, is on VOD on December 20th. Robert Eggers' second horror film with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson as two guys who are stuck together running a lighthouse for what's only supposed to be four weeks, but ends up becoming much, much longer. And there are psychological aspects at play. <laughs> there are perhaps supernatural aspects at play. Maybe. It might all be in their minds. Who knows? But these two guys just tear each other apart. And Defoe and Pattinson are obviously having a great time in this film. A claustrophobic film, great black and white cinematography. I will say the second time I saw it, it didn't hold up as much as I would have liked, and it kills me to say that. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> but still, I think worth watching. And, and I think it's worth watching for the filmmaking aspect of it. 
Eggers is incredible with creating that tone. He did in The Witch, which, which was not a favorite film of mine, and The Lighthouse is not a favorite of mine either. However, the performances are incredible, and that tone, that tone is incredible. And I will never hear a foghorn <laughs> Quite in the, the same, same way yeah. ever and, again. <laughs> and anything with Defoe, you, you need to watch. He's, he is. He elevates anything. Even though I didn't like the Florida Project, I still liked his performance in it. Yeah, so, yeah. he's always good. He he's is. Always and good. Robert Pattinson, got to give that guy credit. He's got some acting chops that I don't think people give him credit for. Well, if they've only seen him in the vampire movies, <laughs> they don't know what he can do. Right. He has really done a great job transforming his career since Twilight ended with all the independent films he's making. Right. I mean, this is a guy who's worked with David Cronenberg twice. Uh, this is a guy who, there's a great movie called The Rover uh, with Guy oh, Pierce. Yeah. He has an incredible part there. He is heartbreaking mm -hmm. in that movie. Uh, so people, if, if you've only known him from Twilight, you don't know how good he is. Right. The other movie, and I don't know if you had a chance to watch this, is Adopt a Highway with Ethan Hawke. Did you take a look at that I one? I did take a look at that. Yeah, yeah. He uh, yeah, has a baby fall into his lap, basically. Yeah, quite literally. And he's, he's an ex-con. He's released, and he's in California. And he was put away in jail for a 25-year sentence. He serves 20 years of that for um, having weed. <laughs> um, some bittersweet moments in that because uh, obviously pot is, is legal now yep. in California and this poor guy has lost most of his life behind bars and has no clue as to what's happening in the world technologically today. Um, he finds this baby in a dumpster and finds new meaning in life and this is his journey and how he finds uh, himself again. Ethan Hawke, he never ceases to amaze me. He's gotten so much better. He's like a fine wine. You yeah, know? I, I think, you know, I, a lot of actors, as they get older, they understand what it's like to be still mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how that is the best thing that you can do. And he's figured that out. Yeah. Uh, it, and this comes off First Reformed, of course, one of my favorite films yeah. and probably my favorite film of his. This, this, he makes this film worth watching. I mean, this thing is hokey. It's really hokey. Uh, but I could forgive it because of his sincerity. That's what you have on DVD and VOD. And next week, we've got our best of 2019 list. We each have our top 10 list of the year. And I think you're going to find some interesting choices on both of our lists. I, we surprised each other. And uh, it's always fun. This I always look forward to this at the end of every year. Uh, because, it, you know, you reflect then on the year. And I go find, I go back and I find things I forgot about. I know. You know. And actually, a couple things that you put on your list I had forgotten about. And I'm like, oh, and then somebody else brought up another one. I'm like, oh, I forgot about that one too. I need to make a running list all year long. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, it's always fun then to uh, go over these lists and to defend them because some of them need to be defended. Uh, <laughs> but also, again, to remind people because we, we live in an age in which it's so easy to find these films now. Right. So top 10 lists, I think, are valuable to any people who are interested in movies or cinema because it's easy to track down things you might not have heard of or might not have come to town. Right. And we all have different lists, too. And just because it's nominated for an Oscar or nominated for a Golden Globe doesn't mean it's on our list. And we have something different to share. Exactly right. Cool. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We will talk with you next week.